Hey folks, welcome to the DC3Cast. Thanks for joining us. I am Brian, with me as always are Zach and Vince. We're going to talk about DC Comics, but record scratch. Before we get to that, we're going to talk about a Marvel comic. We're going to talk about Marvel Legacy number one, just for a few minutes. Uh, We don't want to talk too much about this because there is a new Multiversity podcast starting in just a few weeks, tentatively titled Make Mine Multiversity. That will be a uh, a Marvel centric podcast that is going to do a huge, huge deep dive into this issue. But we were talking about this, and this issue is to us so much like the DC Universe Rebirth special. They wanted to just you know share our quick thoughts on it and just kind of talk about the similarities and differences between this and the Rebirth special, and just our overall thoughts on on this Marvel initiative that is spitting out of this. So Zach, you were the one who wanted to talk about this initially. So tell us, what did you think of this issue? Um, so I think overall, I liked it. Mostly because I'm a... Is it okay if we spoil a, a Marvel book on our DC podcast? Does that count? <laughs> yeah, well, this, well, is, this is really a gross violation yeah. of everything we stand for. <laughs> <laughs> let's put this out there. We're going to spoil this book. So yes, go ahead and spoil it. Okay. I mean, I'm a huge Fantastic Four, Mark. And Me too. This felt like the follow-up to Secret Wars that I've really been waiting for. It, it's almost kind of like the last year or two of Marvel Comics hasn't happened for me, just because I've been really tuned out um, and just really disinterested in everything that's going on. And I won't say that this issue did much to, like, reignite my my excitement or interest in marvel but i do love jason aaron and i love fantastic four and so whether or not he ends up doing something with like fantastic four if he's going to do some kind of weird like avengers book with that with like the prehistoric avengers or whatever um i'm i'm down with that vince what was your quick take um, yeah, uh, same kind of thing that Zach said, um, but I think I'm probably a little more down on the, on the actual product than, than he was, um, for reasons that we might get into with more depth, but, uh, basically it felt like this was Marvel, this was Marvel's rebirth and yet because of outside circumstances, it differed in some very key ways from Rebirth that didn't make it work as well. Um, to, to me, this was more of a... There were lots of cool moments in this issue, but it lacked any sort of emotional tether that you know something like Rebirth had. And I'm not just saying that as a, as a, a DC fan, because I love Jason Aaron and I love his work at Marvel, and, and I want it to succeed, but because of the lack of an emotional core, it really felt much more like a pitch for the next one or two or three years of stories than anything in the way of a story itself. And Rebirth felt a lot like that, but there was at least a couple of really strong story cores to kind of dig into. Yeah, I I can totally get behind that as well. The lack of an emotional 
core. Um, and I have some thoughts on that, but I want to hear Brian. Well, you know, I, uh, I liked it more than I thought I would because I have not read a Marvel comic with regularity in a few years now, partially because of just we read so many damn comics for this show that it's hard to read anything with any regularity, but also because just, you know, the, the product has somewhat lost my interest. Um, what I found really interesting, though, and and again, like, you know, Jason Aaron wrote the whole thing. So it, it, a lot of it does feel like Jason Aaron, and I, I think, you know, all of us are big Aaron fans, so that was really cool. What I think is, is interesting, though, is aside from the prehistoric Avengers stuff, and aside from the Fantastic Four and Wolverine Returns, was there anything that really felt new and different in here? No, not a thing. Like I feel like when you read the Rebirth special, and I was—I actually just went back today in preparation for this and reread my review of the Rebirth special, and I was pretty down on it for the same reasons I said it's barely a comic. It's like it's a collection of little vignettes, but everything that happened in that comic felt really different and new and whether you liked it or not it didn't it wasn't just a continuation of what was happening and i feel like for a lot of these stories it's just a continuation of what's happening already you know you, does that make yeah, sense? yeah yeah a lot of the teases were it seemed like you know references to things that are happening currently in books or 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 just about to happen it's like very much entrenched in the in the status quo right now yeah, it felt a little bit like Malibu Stacy's. <laughs> um, but like, specifically, like I, I was talking with uh, Multiversity publisher, former editor in chief Matthew Malikoff about this issue today, and he was saying that he doesn't read solicits at all; that he completely avoids that. So he didn't know that more Planet Hulk stories were coming, and he loves Planet Hulk, so he was super jazzed about that. And I was like, well, I don't follow Marvel solicits very carefully, but I was aware that was coming back. You know, like, I feel like there's a couple of things. If you're really disconnected, I could see you maybe liking this issue more because you weren't aware of some of the things that are happening already, or like you said, Zach, are about to happen. But, like, you know, we were all hoping with Rebirth that it was going to mean the JSA and Wally West and uh, stuff like that, and then we actually got (laughs) that. You know what I mean? Like, it was, this doesn't, aside from the Fantastic Four, which I think people were legitimately... And, and this isn't even really a return to the Fantastic Four. Yeah. This is a return of the Richards kids. We don't know where their their parents are. Um, but aside from that, I don't think anything in this issue had the um, the payoff of, of either Wally or the JSA stuff. Or even, like, you know, seeing Ted Kord and Jaime together or seeing... Ryan Choi get that message from Ray Palmer. Like there was, there were a lot of things in that rebirth issue that felt really momentous. Mm-hmm. And I guess Wolverine being around again is momentous. Uh, but... Yeah, it's it's kind See, of weird how like there's not a clear like Wally parallel here. You know, there's mm-hmm. like I guess Valeria is kind of supposed to be that because she's the narrator. But right. then the the Richards kids are also kind of like the Watchmen reveal basically of you know of of that issue which like doesn't compare at all um i don't know see here's my problem with that stuff um and and this is going to be there there's going to be some subtleties here and i realize 
like we're a DC podcast and so we probably favor DC, but like if you think about what was going on at DC with the new 52, it, it, it felt like, and of course it's never this in comics. They it's, you know, forever is not really forever, you know, but it felt like they were intentionally moving away from uh, all this legacy and stuff to produce the new 52 that we spent five full years with um, to, to the point where uh, I, I don't want to say I, I never thought we'd get that Wally West back, but, but, but he was decidedly erased from their status quo. Whereas, what happened to Wolverine and what happened to, because it wasn't, because none of this was a reboot at Marvel like it was at DC. Like, this is just the continuation of how things have always gone at Marvel. It felt like just another character dying and coming back in a year or two. You know, I I mean, someone said, you know, we've been without Logan for three years. And I was like, three years is nothing anymore. Not only that, but there's, there's, yeah, and there's and old really, man Logan there. Even. So... Right, yeah, there's old exactly. Dan Logan. There's a Wolverine in every book. You know, there's yeah. eight Wolverines running around. This, yeah, if anything, this feels like a regression in a lot of ways too. Um, I did, I did see a semi-hot take that I kind of like in that, um, you know, just with how salty the internet community has been about Marvel's diversity push, and like, you know, getting away from the classic interpretations of these characters or whatever and basically with the the prehistoric avengers yeah. aaron's basically just being like well actually those guys were knockoffs too <laughs> yeah yeah i saw i saw that too i think I did, that was in the comments section on some newsrama or something is where i saw that um, yeah which yeah. i kind of i kind of like that i like it too yeah that was a really good take on that and i already i already liked the idea of the 10,000 bc avengers but like Reading that, I was like, "Oh, yeah, I'm here for that. That's fine." Um, but then the, the the Fantastic Four thing, I, I can I can agree that that's the that's the Wally West angle here. But there's some subtle difference to me, and maybe this is unfair. Maybe this is biased. Um, this is probably biased in a very political way when you're talking about my feelings on it. But uh, we know the reason why those characters aren't around right now. You know, it's entirely driven by Marvel brass and their uh, rivalry with the Fox movies, right? With the or the yeah yeah Fox, yeah, yeah with the Fox yeah, pro- with Fox, the Fox yeah. properties. Yes, yeah. And so to to bring them back, it's like, well, we know the reason that they were gone. And it's entirely, like, creatively bankrupt as a reason. Yeah. You know? And so knowing that makes it fall incredibly flat for, it, for me, even though I'm super psyched to get Fantastic Four stories again eventually. Yeah. You know? But I just can't help but look at it cynically when the whole thing happened for cynical reasons, you know. Um, yeah, so that impact just wasn't there. Now, there's tons of stuff in this book that I liked, like um, basically anything where Aaron is writing Thor or the um, 
the 10,000 BC Avengers. The Wakanda page was awesome. Yeah. That's a yeah. great status quo for Wakanda. Um, like, lo- the Loki stuff was fun. Um, the yeah, I mean there there are a lot of great moments, but 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 this felt like even more of a non-story than Rebirth did, and that pretty much felt like right. not not really a story. Either. Well, like so <laughs> you know? in going back and rereading all that today, like one of the things that struck me was, I mean, I was I loved that Rebirth issue from a from a, like a fanboy perspective because there were so many things that I loved showing up again, but. The moment where Barry pulls Wally out of the Speed Force and hugs him mm-hmm. and just says, "I'm sorry, I forgot you," like it's, I, I I still got choked up reading that today. Just like it's this beautiful scene, and 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 in some ways Barry is speaking for the fans, you know, saying like, "We're sorry, Wally," yeah. you know, and and but it's just it's this moment that feels totally earned. And if this had happened a year into the new Fifty Two, it wouldn't have felt that way at all. You know, because there was real distance and real separation, like you said, Vince, we all probably knew we'd get him back at some point, but you didn't know what Wally you were getting back when. You know, if this really felt huge and it had that emotional gut punch. Like if there was, if the whole issue was about how the Richards kids were separated from their parents and the issue ends with their parents embracing them, that's an emotional story. That's That's something I would mm-hmm. care way more about. But, you know... I love Valeria and uh, and Franklin being like snotty to each other at the end. That was fun, but that's that's not yeah. But it's not nearly the same. Mm-mm. No. Yeah. Uh, anything else to add about this before we move along? Um, uh, DC are, still 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 killing it. <laughs> can, can I ask you guys if there are any books in particular that you're excited about checking out after yes, this you, or you can because i wanted to ask that too <laughs> well i'll answer it um i'm actually really pumped for marvel two in one me too yeah that's that's the one for me as well <laughs> and, and god damn it that zdarsky yeah i was just gonna say zdarsky's writing it so he you know uh, i was gonna say he, he's gonna you're... he's gonna win me over as long as i never have to look at that picture of him in the garfield costume ever again <laughs> Burned in your retinas already. Um, <laughs> gosh, gosh! Did you just say gosh? Yeah, <laughs> like like goofy. He says gosh. Please gorsh. come on. Oh come, Gorsuch. He says Nina Gorsuch. Oh. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, uh, but yeah, that, yeah, that one and. Uh, I'm I'm I'll probably give Black Panther another look. Um because I, I was reading that and then just kind of as my interest in Marvel in general just kinda waned, I I dropped it, but that one page was pretty cool. Yeah. Is there gonna be a ten thousand BC Avengers book? I don't they think ha- so. They haven't said that there's like rumor going around bleeding cool is that eventually wade is going to be off of avengers and that jason aaron is going to take over Mm. um but i don't i don't think that's like been confirmed at all 
See, that's the other thing that bugged me about this this issue is that, or this initiative in general, is that if you're going to shake up your whole line, then how is Dan Slott still writing Spider-Man? Then how is Mark Wade still writing Avengers? Like, you know, you have to... And I know there were a few for DC that carried over, like, you know, Robert Venditti on uh, Green Lantern. But aside from that, like, you know, it was, it all felt really, really new. Yeah. Well, I do, I think slots off Spider-Man at 700, right? Somebody, mm, that's not what they said. Just really? this week, they said his, his departure is a, way, a ways off, I believe is the phrase they used. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it was, I, um. Because I thought the rumor was that Nick Spencer was taking over. That was a rumor, but I don't think that that's... I mean, unless they're fudging... Unless to keep the suspense going, they're saying a ways off, but really that just means, like, well, several months or whatever, you know? Yeah. yeah. But I don't I don't know. Uh, I think it was either Brevert or Alonzo made it sound like... Made it sound like it's... There are no imminent plans, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think he said the well, same about Jason Aaron's Thor, but... See, that feels like it's coming to a logical conclusion, too. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Um, because because I'd like avenues to get back into Marvel, for selfish reasons, even though Aaron's Thor is like one of the few things that I am still really enjoying uh, around Marvel right now, I kind of just want exit and entry points, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Is that wrong? No, I, no, I get that. Not. I was thinking about this today that, you know, I, I was like, why didn't Marvel just start all new number ones again with this? Like, oh, because they did that like six months ago. Yeah, you know? and, right, and right. for the and, last five years. Yeah. yeah, and because their whole thing is the, like, um, the legacy you know, they're numbering. renumbering everything, yeah. But even if they're going with new numbers, they should have switched up the creators on everything or done done something because it seems like some books are logical jumping on points. Some books are clearly just doing the same thing they were doing beforehand. Yeah, it's, it's really weird. it doesn't make sense, and it, it's not like it's not good. I feel like it's not good because even it just these aren't good jumping on points. I don't think because even if it is like the beginning of a new story arc, it's still like the third or fourth arc or yeah, exactly or, right. of like this current run. Like when I when when you open up um, uh, a legacy and you see like the new arc of Amazing Spider-Man, it's like Parker must die or something like that, you know, uh, or the death of Parker. There's there's nothing in there that's telling you, even though it's a part of legacy. There's nothing in that solicit or in that image that's telling you like this is a warm jumping on point for you to come in, you know. Right. And I'm okay as a veteran reader just kind of jumping on with a new arc and figuring it out. But I don't see how this helps other people, you know. I'll even take it a step further. I feel like in this issue, there there was a decided lack of anything to help. Like, okay, if you didn't know who the new Ghost Rider was, you would have no clue until his head burst into flames. Mm-hmm. If if you didn't know who Starbrand was, good luck. Like they didn't even say the characters. Like there wasn't even like a little text box saying who people were. They threw you like right into the middle of the story. And again, as a veteran comic reader and somebody 
who's you know who's part of his job is to be abreast of this stuff. It's not a big deal to me. But this seems even more impenetrable than Rebirth, which was impenetrable in its own way. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's move on. What we're gonna do is we're gonna uh, similar to last week. We're gonna talk about the metal tie-ins. Then we're gonna talk about uh, the first issues of two really big arcs for DC. And uh, yeah, so let's get started. We're gonna start with Batman: The Murder Machine, <laughs> number one. Um, this is uh, the second of the uh, the Dark Knights series here. It's written by Frank Thierry and James Titan the Fourth. Illustrated by Ricardo Federici, and uh, this essentially is the uh, the cyborg Batman. We see Batman uploads uh, Alfred's consciousness into an AI that eventually destroys him and incorporates him into it, and so we get an evil Alfred AI Batman in a cyborgish shell. Um, you guys both liked the Red Death more than I did last week. What did you think of the murder machine? <laughs> I really liked it. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I liked it a lot more than I even expected to. Against against literally every odd. The, yeah. uh, like, all odds. <laughs> can, I, can I say my biggest surprise is the art? I think from those preview pages, I had kind of prepared myself to not like it because it's that kind of more like painterly style that I, I, I don't, I just don't like more photorealistic and I just don't really go for that, but it gave some Ben Oliver vibes and we know you hate Ben Oliver. <laughs> no, what's wrong with you? <laughs> we have... did have some Ben Oliver vibes though. <laughs> it totally did. And we have uh, evidence of you last week saying you hate Ben Oliver. So that's not true. <laughs> that is fake news. <laughs> oh no. Oh, oh no. Um, is this weekend update up in the air? <laughs> uh, Brian, the ignorant slot. <laughs> there we go. Boom. Um, this was fine. I, I kind of have similar feelings about this as I did last week. I think I'm just not big on these type of books. Of the sort of origin story of these one-and-done characters. Um, but the art... Wow. We know that nice. you hate fun because you hate carpool, carpool karaoke. <laughs> Come on, that's terrible. You, you you can't really defend that, can you? Yes, I've seen a lot of good carpool karaoke's. Oh, God, what are we even doing? Right now? <laughs> Zach is referencing a tweet I made yesterday. So, oh. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Uh, no, this is fine. There, there, there were some good parts in this. Um, like I said, I'm just not big into these. Like you know, I don't know if this, I don't know if this issue will in will increase my enjoyment of this character's other metal appearances. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I don't necessarily think it will. But, um, and I normally hate this type of book or project or tie-in, like. I, I really do. I, you, I, I've said on the show before. I was not excited for these evil Batman tie-ins at all, and I'm going in with an open mind, and I think I'm enjoying them for their ridiculousness. They are ridiculous. Oh, they're absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, like just the idea that Alfred is, um, 
<laughs> this AI that like immediately duplicates and infects like everything is uh, wild to me, you know. <laughs> and just seeing like an army of Alfreds showing up and saying, "How can I help?" or "How may I help you?" Sing the bell. I was going to say yeah. that is that is not Alfred's voice, Vince. What is Alfred's oh. voice? How may I help you? There we go. <laughs> you can't escape us. <laughs> I've got a hole in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, oh. I. Uh, it must have been a late addition because it's not even re- reflected on the cover of James Tynan's uh, co-write credit here. Right. And I wonder if that was just, they realized, like, you know, the script needed some punching up, and so he came in and, and did that. But uh, I, I felt this was fun. I, I think... What I think has been... has been consistently good through both of these issues is that I don't think that either scenario, Batman, you know... Uh, basically strapping uh, uh, Barry to the cosmic treadmill or like the thing with Cyborg here. I don't think that either of those are so outside of what Bruce already does. Like these, these both seem like if Bruce were to have a psychic break from reality for, for a little bit, I feel like these are things that Bruce could do. And that's what made it fun. I was afraid it was going to be so campy, over-the-top, evil Bruce. And I feel like both of these were like, no, this is is what happens when Bruce's tethered reality just slips away a bit. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I agree. And and side note, my theory on Tanyan coming in is that um, Thierry just couldn't get... uh... (laughs) The Batman who laughs his dialogue to be twisted enough at the end, and so Tanya had to come in and fix it. <laughs> there's, there's a tiny asterisk next to the T and Tynan, and you go down and it's just twisted. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, yeah, the art in this was very nice. Borat voice, very nice. Um, There's yeah. lots of um, cross hatching, mm-hmm. but it's like actually subtle, you know. Yeah. Um, back in the I don't know late '80s and '90s, there was a lot of cross hatching going on in comics, and it was just like overbearing. But this, it's done so lightly that it gives like texture to everything. Yeah. It's not. It's not there to serve the same purpose that the cross hatching we've come to know in comics is. Um, it, there's just a lot of texture here. Mm-hmm. Agreed. It is pretty. Yeah, it's pretty. Have we seen this artist before on a, a DC book? I believe I've seen him on a Marvel book. Okay. I don't uh, think DC. I'm not certain. I. I mean, I, I thought it was. Obviously, this this style wouldn't work for every book out there, but I I, I would like to see more. Apparently, he did something on Green Lanterns. Maybe it was just like a cover or something. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um. 
Well, that brings us to uh, Suicide Squad number 26, the Gotham Resistance Part 3, written by Rob Williams, illustrated by, uh, we pronounced it last week. I think it's Stepian Shayek. I'll let you say it then. And, uh, I'm pretty sure that's right. This is the um, <laughs> the uh, Welcome to Poison Ivy's Jungle is the name of the uh, issue, or at least the the tagline on the front of the issue, which uh, both sounds like a Guns N' Roses reference and disgusting at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can is this the best issue of the Suicide Squad? Uh, no. No, it's not. There was a better one. I don't remember. It's the same as any other Suicide Squad issue. You think pro- so? I do. I think. Thanks, Holly Berry is- Storm. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh man. This is our Marvel episode, guys. Did you see my Joss Whedon joke from earlier today? <laughs> I did. I enjoyed that. Yes. <laughs> um. Thank you. There's no mute uh, thing on this new microphone. I can't mute my sneezes. Uh, we can figure that out. Um. Uh, no, I I just think I just think the Rob Williams Suicide Squad aesthetic is something I will never like. And aside from uh, Stapion's uh, fantastic art with like terrific express. The expressions that he draws on these characters' faces are they're bonkers. So great. Yeah, they're so good. Um, they're they're good enough to page through this book on its own without reading any of the dialogue. But I I don't know if I'm just like overly sensitized to this his Suicide Squad that I just can't read it anymore without it feeling like needles jamming me in my ears and eyes and it brain. I just can't. This was not as good as the previous issues, and it was because of all this Suicide Squad bull crap. See, I just, I guess I didn't feel like there was all that much Suicide Squadiness to this, other than, like, the first page. Oh, uh, I don't, see, maybe I'm be, I, I, I'm fully admitting that I could just be clouded by preconceived notions even though i read this whole issue <laughs> like i okay wait a minute it's the best issue of suicide squad so far because of the last page how about that what's on the last oh yeah i'm scrolling that right last now. page oh yeah absolutely um i thought i thought there were a lot of good moments in this i i liked the Harley Poison Ivy stuff. I liked the stuff with Dick and Damien. Um, yeah, there were things I liked about this. Um, I mean, it's a garbage comic. Let's just let's establish that right off the bat. Because um, it, it, <laughs> oh, it, I don't, I don't even know if I'd go that far. It's Suicide Squad. It's a garbage comic. But um, I'll say this too. As much, I mean, the art is is obviously beautiful. There, there is no arguing with that. However, I will say it was a little bit distracting how unlike the rest of the issues of Metal, the characters look. Mm-hmm. Like Green Arrow has, you know, his hair has grown like six inches 
since last week, and Robin's costume looks really different. I love all that stuff, but it was it was a little bit of an odd choice for a tie-in like this. Um, but I think overall, I I probably fall somewhere in between you guys. I think that the Rob Williams Suicide Squad has been you know borderline unreadable for its entire run, and this is slightly better than that, but ever so slightly. See, I mean, I I hate this run just as much as either of you. I don't know. You even, were even. I like John Ramita. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You guys are never going to let me live it down. <laughs> you brought it um, up. Your tombstone one day, which I will gladly pay for, will say, here lies Zach Williamson. He kind of likes Suicide Squad. <laughs> Zach Williamson. Williamson. <laughs> I'm looking at the credits. Congratulations to you and Joshua. No, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at my flash credits right now. That's why I'm saying that. Josh Wilkerson, here lies. Josh Wilkerson. Zach, see? <laughs> fuck you guys. You know what I mean? I'm tired. I'm looking at the flash issue right now. I'm, I'm trying. Um, I, there, there's um, a parallel in the flash issue I'm trying to find here. Um, but no. It's, Zach Sayek. Yeah. Seth Jan Stevens. Yes. Uh, but it's going to say that you kind of like Suicide Squad. Um, well, that Mario. was... Way to, way to make it to that finish line there, Brian. Yeah. Well, but I I think personally that this issue is on par with the other two issues of this little crossover. Mm. Plus or minus five percent error. <laughs> I, I'm I'm just gonna chalk it up to I, I'm just going to chalk it up to my, my bias against this project, I guess. The whole Rob Williams Suicide Squad thing. So it, it appears that I'm not correct about this, but I was going to say I felt that the coloring on this and The Flash looked very similar this week. But um, Shay Yick did the coloring for uh, for Suicide Squad. But... I was just saying, I feel like this was an excellent week for DC coloring. I, I Something we don't talk about enough, I think, in general, about as comics fans, is about just the, the choices the colorists make. And I felt that this issue was really beautiful, beautifully colored. Uh, and I was a huge fan of what The Flash did visually this week, too. So, um, yeah, that's all. That's why I was looking at The Flash credits before. <laughs> uh, any other Suicide Squad thoughts? Um, I, I hate that the next issue is going to go back to being about the normal stuff that this book is about. Oh, I I guess before we go off this, we should ask, um, Zach, is this a great comic or greatest comic? (laughs) I can't, I just can't. (laughs) Pull on the old Stephen Colbert trick there. I'll put you down for great. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, their costumes really are very <laughs> they, good. They were very good. <laughs> Shout out to our friend Greg Matasevich, who made that joke in conversation with his girlfriend this weekend. He texted me today. Wow. So, did, did when she showed up for a date, did he say ten out of ten? Your outfit looks great. <laughs> I hope he did. He didn't quite give me the context, but uh, you know. But yeah. <laughs> I do. So this is this is the kind of change we're seeing in the world, guys. Due to us, this is uh, this is us. Oh man. Well, uh, 
this brings us to a a a, a hotly anticipated book in the Salvatore House, uh, <laughs> Wonder Woman number thirty one, uh, written by James your, Robinson. Your wife was real excited. About my this. my daughter, this came in the mail, and she was like, "I want that comic." So your, your to... daughter saw it and said, "Where did uh, Wonder Woman's right leg go?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, we'll get to that. Um, the cover is something else. It really is. Um, but this is obviously the first issue of the James Robinson uh, run on the book, illustrated by Carlo Pagulayan. And uh, I, I want you guys, I wrote a thousand words about this today, so I, I want to hear what you guys have to say about it first, and then I'll get into what I think. Well, I mean, it's no Suicide Squad, but... <laughs> um oh boy i'm i'm really torn you guys zach do do you have i so i i i liked this even though it was basically nothing i liked (laughs) this a lot well, that, that that was sort of one of my main comments, which is just like, this is, not only is this kind of nothing, it's kind of somebody else's nothing. Like, it's th- this is a Jeff Johns comic that Jeff Johns doesn't have the time to write. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I feel like a lot of the stuff that I love about what Robinson does wasn't really present here. Not that it was a bad comic, it's just not... It's just not what I think Robinson would have done if he was given carte blanche on coming back to DC. I don't know. I thought that like really like prim executor of of oh that, that, yes, that was that was like pure Robinson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did, oh. did you guys see Robinson's interview about how he ended up back at DC? I did not. No, I'm I fascinated to hear this. He texted Jeff Johns out of the blue. And said, "Hey, do you have anything for me at DC?" <laughs> wow. And and uh, Jeff Johns said, "Well, how about Wonder Woman?" And James Robinson was like, "Are you serious?" <laughs> he, yes, I'll do Wonder Woman. You know. Mm-hmm. And apparently, they gave him they gave him like Grail and Baby Darkseid and Jason who we haven't seen yet in this right in this run yet. Although if you read a lot of bad reviews, you'll hear people say that Jason has changed his name to Paul and it's really Hercules because they don't understand what the fucking arc's about. Well, they they probably didn't read the entire comic or comprehend what they were reading because a lot of comics criticism on the <laughs> well, let's let's not uh <laughs> 10 out of 10, the costumes were great. Yeah. These characters were all handsome and pretty. <laughs> um, the art is very good. Yeah, oh, they I, got, I, I, I do have a little bit of a quibble with it, but we'll get to that later. Okay, well, anyway, what I was saying was uh, they gave him that and left the rest to him. And he seemed really enthusiastic about writing that and, and playing with that. And th- there's a lot in this comic that I did like, like... I loved the reveal of Hercules Unbound because you knew it was going to be somebody. And for a while, you even thought it might be Jason, you right. know, because 
I, I, I mean, when was the last time we actually saw? Did we even ever see Jason? I don't remember what he. Looked we like. we just saw him as a baby. Yeah. Okay. So we never even saw what he might look like, you know. And. Uh, what if he's Jason was... Priestley? What? What if he's Jason Priestley? Okay. <laughs> just like a beautiful, a beautiful man from the nineties. <laughs> we got a beautiful lumberjack. <laughs> Joe Manganiello, you mean? Yeah. Yep. Exactly. That's yep. from the Batman movie. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Um, so, but anyway, uh, like I liked that reveal, Hercules Unbound. That was fun. That was immediately classic, you know, because that's a character that we haven't seen in a long time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the stuff with Grail. I, I can't tell you guys how little I give a crap about Grail, and James Robinson actually managed to make me give a crap. <laughs> like I actually care about what she's doing feeding baby dark side the essence of the gods to make him bigger you know the stuff with diana inheriting hercules estate this is obviously some like ruse or whatever i can tell you i didn't give a crap about any of that at all and in fact the stuff between her and steve trevor it all felt very much like wonder woman being pushed to the background I feel like right now that is a legitimate criticism of this. Now it's only been one issue, you know, mm-hmm. but it really feels like she's not in control of this, of everything that's going on yet, you know? And it, it just feels kind of weird um, coming off of Ruckus run, you know? So I'm not sure about that yet, but like, I like this idea that they're coming for the old gods, you know? And, Mm -hmm. um, and, and seeing Hercules, you know, in the sexy lumberjack outfit, I could practically hear, uh, Bon playing in the, uh, (laughs) I could smell the beard oil, (laughs) you know? So, uh, there were parts of it that I was really into, but, um, I'm just sad that like baby dark side is gone already. Yeah. 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 Now Now he's going to be, now we've got like. Second, dark side. second grade dark side. Yeah. Yeah. He's gonna be like um a YouTuber or something. <laughs> yeah. Having um, to apologize for saying uh <laughs> for for calling somebody an ethnic slur during a an intense video game moment. Yeah. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um Well, okay, I I'll say this about the pushing Diana to the background thing. You're not wrong, that is a valid criticism. What I'll say though is when you are given this many, like you said, you know, all he was given was three characters he had to use in the book. And so he has to find a place to put those characters and you have to establish what the art, like, you know, one of the problems is that so little happens in this issue and yet it had to sell people on the rest of the arc. And unfortunately, when you're making the arc about Grail, it's not really about Diana. Like this is this is a this is a story that's happening in Justice League. It, it, it should be happening in Justice League, but instead it's happening in Wonder Woman. And again, that it's a valid criticism that Diana was was a marginalized piece of this issue. But I think that's more on the decision to tell this story in this book than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, 
it does seem like it almost could have been like a like a mini series or like an event type thing. Agreed. Agreed. Completely. How cool would it have been to have like a big Wonder Woman centric event? Yeah. Absolutely. I um my issue with with Taggy Lyons art is I feel like he went not quite into Greg Land territory with his making the faces <laughs> exactly uh actors faces but like there is no doubt that he had a photo of Gal Gadot like taped to his yep. drawing board and Joe Manganiello for for Hercules. Like there are moments where it is indisputable that that he is using photo reference of those two in particular. Well, yeah. but at least he's not like tracing over No, he's I, I said he's, of real people. Yeah. No, you know. Yeah, just making the to make the land comparison, that's that's a low blow to anyone. <laughs> I said he's not land. It was anyway, yeah. I see your point. The the problem with land, yeah, definitely. The problem with land is that um the the product on the page it looks like the characters aren't even in the same like right, space yeah. with one another and right. everything and um i don't mind <laughs> i don't mind when when artists use photo references of actors as long as it doesn't look like like there are some issues of uh, marvel star wars where they're so they're so con- <laughs> they're so concerned yep. with making han solo look like um uh, Harrison Ford, that it looks like a Mad Magazine parody of, yep. you know. It's <laughs> a great uh, comment, yeah. And uh, there's one issue of Amazing Spider-Man from, I believe it was JMS's run, where Mary Jane is working with a director at a theater, and it's Robert De Niro. It's not <laughs> even, his name is different, but it's not even like just sort of suggesting De Niro. It's literally Robert De Niro directing her, saying things that don't sound like Robert De Niro at all. He has a and mole he, on his face. He he's does. Wearing, he's wearing a taxi driver crew jacket. Like you yep. know. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yep. He's he's asking uh, Mary Jane to milk his nipples. <laughs> it's really <laughs> the man's made fifty movies. You have to go with Meet the Fockers. <laughs> His best movie. That was Meet it was Meet the Parents, my friend. With the nipples or then that's Meet the Fockers? That's Meet the Parents, and I would bet you my life savings. <laughs> I have nipples, Greg. Would you milk me? Meet the Parents. It's the first okay. one. Okay. I, I to be fair, I have only seen each of those movies once. So <laughs> I love that this is this is the straw that breaks the DC three. <laughs> I I made this out of one solid piece of wood. It's where I hope you'll get married. It's the altar. Uh, Greg, you might call it a hopa. I've got the whole movie, remember? I did not realize you were you were a, a parent head. Not a parent head, a parent head. I'm a, I'm a fuck head. <laughs> You're a fuck face, got it. <laughs> <laughs> so my last question about this book for you guys before we move on. That first page, obviously Wonder Woman is talking to Jason at that point. Yeah. My my prediction is that uh, that is also uh, that she is she is shouting brother to protect her brother. The no, please don't is directed at a different character, which is Doctor Manhattan. Look at that blue lightning. 
man. We know this is a Jeff Johns thing. I think that scene is going to take place in Doomsday Clock. That's wild, if true. <laughs> so, I know there was like some talk that this was originally only supposed to be like a six issue arc or so, but I think it's already been solicited out to like seven or maybe it's even six eight. Months. So it's twelve. It's six months. Oh, yeah. okay. Six months. Okay. Um. Okay. Oh, I, uh, did you guys hear the worst rumor in comics today? No. Maybe. I don't know. So uh, both Tom King and Jason Fabok have tweeted yes. stuff they're working on together. And the rumor is it's a Rorschach comic. No. That's not. No. 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 Because no. The, the, Brian, first, the first panel you see is like a hand that's been blown off someone's body on a snowy uh, like floor. And they're saying that that's, and then the hand starts moving. So we're gonna essentially get the um, the scene from the Monster Squad of when the Wolfman is blown up and then comes back together, but it's gonna be Rorschach instead of the Wolfman. I'm I'm ninety nine percent sure that whatever they're teasing is like the fill in month thing for Mister Miracle. Oh, probably. I hope so. But what did I tell you, Brian? What yeah. did I tell you when I saw that variant cover with the yep. Rorschach stuff? You said he's back and he's good again. No. Um, <laughs> I, said... <laughs> I probably did say that, didn't I? Oh, I guys, wasn't he already like back and good again when um when Azarello wrote him? Bitch to be you, Zach. Back back and a bitch to be bitch to be back again. Yeah. <laughs> I... All of our oh. inside jokes are collapsing on top of each other. <laughs> Dude, you just made me so mad. I, I honestly don't think that's what it is. I think that would be really dumb. Unless they are doing, like, unless there's going to be Doomsday Clock tie-ins that, that like, tell one story. No. Which, like, Jeff Johns already said that there wouldn't be. So if they're, like, backpedaling on that this early, yeah. then, like, gosh... even want them to tell the story they're telling <laughs> agreed <laughs> agreed all right well let's let's move over to to, to the first part of a lonely place of a live, living uh detective comics number 965 written by james town the fourth illustrated by eddie barrows tim drake's back and he is good again this is uh undeniable um oh yes uh what is not good is eddie barrows drawing tim smiling that was weird. That was really weird. <laughs> um, Aside from that, I like this issue. He's been uh, so other good. Quick, and... Eddie, Barrow's, Eddie Barrow's take on that first, uh, second page, I guess. Uh-huh. There's a, a trademark Barrow's uh, costume hole on, like, <laughs> on um, Tim's, like, abdomen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't We're... get that. We are so deep in the weeds now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, let's just th- make noises. Derp. This is this is. I really liked this though. Um, it didn't. I mean, it didn't do a whole lot. Like. 
it basically just retold Tim's origin in a way that lets us all know that it's back to the way that it was, you know? Yeah. It's, you know, Lord help me. They tried to change Tim, but it's time to go back to the old him. (laughs) (laughs) It's, uh, (laughs) I'm such a jackass. Um, but, but that's a relief because I think Tim's, original origin is so good it is it's it's really unique and it it defined him as a character before he ever put on a costume you know um yeah it's fantastic and, I, uh, now, and, then, and then, like, the... Oh, go ahead, Zach. Sorry. No, you go ahead. Finish. I was just going to say, in the the reveal at the end with uh, with Jor-El and the, the, the Tim Drake of Tomorrow, mm-hmm. I, like... And then, and then Doomsday. I, I, don't, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> you, you don't like your, your action comics mixing in with your detective comics? Well, I just felt like... Um, your chocolate and your peanut butter getting, getting all swirled around there? <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know if all these tastes taste great together. <laughs> um, but, but... I will say that... Um, I guess I'm excited to see all these rebirth things coming to a head because two years is uh, we're we're a year and a half into this now, right? Yeah. Or, so is it a year and a half? When did it start? Yeah, it's around about there. Yeah, we're getting close. Anyway, um, I I want to see all this stuff come to a head. It's just that I thought that maybe the the lonely place of living was going to be more like if it's going to get into all this stuff already, I, I don't know. It's kind of, it's kind of taking Tim Tim's return sort of out of it to me. Well, okay. L- let me, let me jump in here for one second. Um, so our listeners are going to hear an interview I did with James Tyne on the fourth in a few minutes. And he talks about how initially this was supposed to be much more of a action and detective alternating weeks event, but mm. they they decided to separate that, and so that he could have more time with just Tim. So I, I I think that while this cliffhanger certainly looks like it's going to be otherwise, I think it's going to be more Tim centric than than we think. Oh, okay, I um want to get your guys's thoughts on this i I mean i i feel like this is what it's going to be but you know with the most recent solicits we have the superman super sons teen titans crossover coming up and it talks about the batman of tomorrow do you think that's this tim do you think he's going to stick around for a while oh i I hope i I hope not i do not believe it is okay i don't know why I don't believe it is. the The only reason I thought that is because of kind of the similar language used. Like here, he calls him the Tim Drake of tomorrow, and then the the solicits. It's he's he's the Batman of tomorrow. Um, yeah, what it, solicit it seems is that? Weird. That's the Superman thirty seven. Okay. 
I gotta it, look it at that. It seems weird to have two future Batman so close together. Well, the but... Batman of tomorrow is like a character from the sixties. I don't know oh, if they're gonna. Okay. I don't know if they're referencing that or not. There was a Batman of tomorrow from the Silver Age. Um, my question about this was: Is this the same Tim Drake who is showing up in Batwoman as the? Tim Drake Batman who just who like Green's Gotham City or Man, that's an even deeper cut there or no, okay. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go deeper or is this the Tim and Drake of the future that was Batman Beyond of the New 52 I believe I think this you're is definitely go I ahead. believe this is the Tim Drake of tomorrow that was in Jeff Johns Teen Titans I don't remember that at all. That was in that. That was in that light. Are are you are you being serious or are you making a? Are you being lighthearted? No, I think I'm. No, I think I'm. You really think it's the same one? Because that'd be interesting. I think you're onto something, Brian, with the with the Batwoman connection. Just because that's, you know, I mean, and Tynan t- is co-writing that. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah, so. yeah. yeah. Mm. That's, but yeah, I, no, I, I, now that you're talking about that, Vince, that's interesting too. I thought of that one. It was from like his Teen Titans. Yeah, it was like the Titans of Tomorrow arc. I think. Yes. Yep. Yep. Hmm. Uh, man, none of this is confusing at all, is it? <laughs> no, no, I know, right? I mean, I think ultimately it doesn't really matter which future Tim this is. Uh, no. You know, it, it's it's supposed to be teaching current Tim a lesson. You know, Tim Drake is the friends we made along the you way. You always leave a note. <laughs> yes, Tim Drake of the future is essentially J. Walter Weatherman. Oh, man. We are back on our bullshit tonight. Um, Extremely. Yeah. But no, I think overall this was a very strong reintroduction of Tim Drake to DC readers. Um, And it's funny because this Tim Drake is no different than the Tim we got in Detective Comics the first, you know, six months of Rebirth or whatever, but it's markedly different than the Tim Drake we got in the New 52. And so I, I, I understand the impulse to tell his origin again, especially because he's a character that actually the origin... Hasn't been told a hundred times, so it 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 didn't it didn't feel excessive to me to tell his origin again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Anything else to add about this book? Um, I think. I I do like having this as a kind of companion piece to what's going on in action. I think it's kind of weird how it's getting lesser billing with, you know, not having the special covers or all the, I don't, I don't feel like it's getting quite as much attention outside the fact that multiversity comics is your source for lonely pace of living and you should come check it out. But, uh, your checks in the mail. Ka-ching. Um <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, it's a. Uh, well, it, I, I, it, is, it is weird how separate they're keeping them when how clearly like intertwined they are. 
What I'll say is this. I'll, I'll say that we have known since the issue that Tim died that Tim wasn't dead. So, th- so this return is is fun, but it's not surprising. Whereas, like, one of the very few characters who has never really had a major comics presence, despite being around for 70 or 80 years, is Jor-El. Mm-hmm. You know, so... That's yeah. true, yeah. And yet, somehow, like, I'm... I've been conditioned as a comic book reader to somehow not think that Jarrell being around is as big of a deal as we're supposed to think it is. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Well, because I don't think any of us really believe that it's like actual Jarrell and this will change anything. Yeah. Right. Until he says Krypton, I'm, uh, I'm not convinced. God, we are so. How are so, they going to uh, designate that? How are we going to. Like phonetically, are they gonna? I said they're gonna put they're gonna put the T O N incredibly close together. <laughs> I just think whenever he says he says Krypton, if he's winking at the camera, he's saying Krypton. <laughs> are we? Uh, can, we might have to come up with a list of like banned jokes and phrases that we can't <laughs> use on the show anymore. <laughs> I think back in good again. Is is right at the top of that list, probably. Yeah, <laughs> You're right. But we're gonna now hear my chat with James Tatum the fourth, and we'll be back and good again. Wow, I was waiting for one of you to wolf howl there. <laughs> this issue is the beginning of this story that's been building almost for the entirety of Rebirth. It's been a really great thing to see the little pieces coming together. When did you have the sort of skeletal structure of this story in place? And, you know, has this, have you been building up to this exact moment or has a lot of things, have a lot of things come and gone since Rebirth has grown? Uh, That's a great question. I mean, I'd say it's a bit of both. Like I knew, uh, very early on in the process of developing the, uh, the my detective run, uh, you know, they brought, like, I, I went into the offices to have the my first, like, long chat with Jeff about this series, uh, and particularly how to lay out uh, the, the death of Tim Drake at the end and how that would connect into uh, the larger rebirth narrative. Um, and I, and I said very, very bluntly in that meeting is like, like, you know, Jeff, I'm so honored to be a part of this, but I have like one thing that I want to request more than anything else, which is when Tim Drake comes back, I want to be the one who tells that story. Um, and so that that was something. And, you know, and he was good to good, good on his word there. And uh, and I'm extremely grateful for that, uh, because the Tim Drake really is my my favorite character. Um, and I knew I knew the story uh, that I wanted to tell uh, in a kind of thematic sense when I, in terms of bringing him back and I wanted to uh, and how I wanted to kind of confront him uh, with uh, confront him with himself really. Uh, And there were a few different ways that I could sort of see that playing out, but it was once again uh, earlier this year, uh, they brought me and Dan Jurgens in uh, to have another long conversation and lay out the storyline. And, and at first, I think we, we, we were sort of kicking around ideas and 
uh, about how to sort of maybe do uh, a, a connected story that actually would be like, you know, part one in action, part two in detective, so on and so forth. Uh, but but we realized very very early on that both of these stories would be incredibly personal stories, um, and that the the Superman story was going to be very personal uh, with him and Jor El, uh, the the revealed Mister Oz, and uh, and Detective was going to be uh, a very personal story about Tim and and you know honestly himself. Um, so that was the. Like, it, that allowed me, that lens allowed me to actually tell the, the more personal version of what I was going to do, because I was building the, the personal arc of the story I wanted to tell, but I kind of figured that I, I would need to kind of couch it in the middle of a kind of event comic. Um, but because, you know, right now, you know, at DC, we're, we're there we're right in the verge of two incredible events with like doomsday clock around the corner and metal running uh, currently that we actually get to uh, get to kind of tell an epic level story that is very deeply personal uh, and very much about Tim Drake. So I'm, I'm incredibly happy with what we've been able to do here. Um, and, uh, and really this, and like a lonely place of, of living is, uh, it's kind of the culmination of everything in my detective run to this point. Now, Tim is such an interesting character for so many reasons. Uh, I was about the age that Tim Drake was when he became Robin. So I was reading it and I was seeing, you know, a kid that was my age becoming Robin. It was this incredibly formative moment for me. And I think that Tim is in many ways, like the ultimate fan in a way, you know, he figures out, Batman's super identity, you know, his secret identity, and, you know, he's he's this person who thinks about Batman, and, and I love in this issue how you talk about how Batman needs a Robin, and, you, just, you know, it's all this stuff that's been such a part of Tim, but you approach it in this really fresh, really direct way that I think for somebody who picks up this book for the first time, maybe without a lot of Tim history, instantly gets who the character is, instantly understands what his motivations are. So having said that, how important was it for you to introduce Tim to a new generation? Because, you know, I, I think for a lot of folks, myself included, maybe the New 52, Tim Drake didn't feel quite as much like, I hate when people say this, but my Tim Drake, you know. So so how did you feel it was your responsibility to to bring your version of Tim Drake to a reader in this issue in a clear and concise way? I mean, I... I... Like I think you kind of nailed it in uh, you kind of nailed my thought process right there because it really did come down to the fact that if if I were to tell a story that that really encapsulates uh, what I think is special about this character and why I think Tim Drake is one of the best characters that has ever been created at DC. Um, I knew I needed to ground him back in the origin that I I grew up with because the the origin of uh, the original storyline, a lonely place of dying, uh, builds Tim perfectly. Uh, everything that his character like it, everything that builds that that you can build his character up is is there right at the beginning, down to the fact that this. Uh, you know, this 13-year-old kid solves the the greatest mystery in the world, which is the identity of Bat- Batman and uh, and Robin, and and he does it not 
like, and that's almost, and the amazing thing about that story is that he solves that in a passive way. Like he, he had that solved and he was kind of happy knowing it. He, he didn't try to do anything with that information, but it was once he actually saw Batman flailing after the death of Jason Todd, that he knew something was wrong and he knew he needed to act and he knew he needed to save the concept of Batman. Because the strongest thing about Tim, and this is what I, I, I was trying to get into with how I was writing the character, and in, in particularly the first half of this comic, what I, what I was really trying to get across is uh, his greatest strength is that he sees Batman and the mythos of Batman in the same way us as readers and us as fans see Batman. He can take that kind of aerial view and see... Like, you know, and kind of see that, like, oh, Bat- like Batman needs people. He he pushes them away all the time, but he needs them. Um, and, and it is, it's that insight and that understanding of, of human character and, uh, and just, and also just uh, his incredible uh, detective skills, which are, which are very people centric. It's he understands how people work and how people connect and what they need and what they're going to do. Um, and that's, uh, that's really powerful. Um, so yeah, it, like, I, I think that that, that's what I was trying to evoke. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. It sounds like I, I did. I, I captured that in, at least, uh, pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the relationship between Superman and Robin has always been a lot of fun. I particularly love the Dick Grayson Clark relationship, and we haven't seen as much with Tim and Clark. But I think that there's a really interesting parallel between both of them. You know, Clark stands for this idea of what Superman is. I think I think Clark would be the first to tell you that the idea of Superman is as important as Superman is. And I think Tim feels that same way about Batman, that it's the idea that matters so much. So when you're putting Tim into the Superman world, do you find that there are natural connections that you're making between these characters? Or is it... Uh, is it more difficult to integrate him into things like Jor-El, like uh, Doomsday? You know, how, how do you feel that works? I mean, I think that that's an incredible point, and I think that he did, like, the thing that I, I was almost surprised uh, how easily connected was, uh, the, was the back and forth between Jor-El and Tim. Uh, because now knowing that Mr. Oz is Jor-El, knowing the, what's in his mind as he's speaking to this young boy who puts the entire world on his shoulders. And because that's, that's always the, that's the other aspect of Tim that I think is incredibly important when nobody else acts, then he, it, because he knows what needs to be done, he does it. Like, even, even though, like, because by it's, it's almost a, with great power comes great responsibility because he has the answer of how to do it right. And if no one else is going to do it, then he has to do it. There's no question in him. Um, and, uh, and the thing that Jorel kind of represents is that, that the, the, that path of knowing the right thing when nobody else is kind of willing to act can be a lonely path. It can be a path that ends with your, your entire world turning against you. Um, and, and no one believing you and everyone calling you insane and then end with like, you know, you having to send your son off to a dying, like off planet.
planet from this dying world that that you wait that you spent your entire life trying to protect and it's just like he like the tenderness there between him seeing himself and tim i thought was really really powerful and that was something that that i sort of like I didn't see so much from the aerial view of the story until I really got down and started writing it. Um, but yeah, no, the, like the, the ties between, uh, the, the two like great families of the DC universe, uh, it like, it, it, it is, it's, it's very palpable and it's very, uh, powerful. Uh, what I find so interesting, and we're going to get into some spoiler territory here. So, uh, you know, be warned, listeners, of this uh, when it runs on the podcast. The uh, when Tim encounters the older version of himself, the Tim Jacob tomorrow, as he calls himself, he's become everything that Tim doesn't want to be. He doesn't want to be Batman. He's brandishing a gun. He seems like he, he there's there's this air of uh, of cynicism to him. You know, he he, just, he compliment he comments on how young Tim seems. There's just it, it's everything that Tim doesn't want to be, and that must be really hard for that character to encounter. When you were writing that, was that part of what you were going for? That Tim is looking at this this funhouse mirror version of himself. Absolutely, and really, that ties into what I wanted to do uh, in my in the entire detective run. Like, because this, this story really is a culmination of a lot of the themes that have been building for a long time. Um, and a lot of the ways that different characters have kind of questioned uh, the, the nature of Batman and it's, you know, and whether or not it, the, the nature of Batman itself can be destructive. Um, and the idea that Tim, this kind of master planner and optimist who wants to build this better world and all of that, that by the process of the, the what he's trying to build could become this dark, twisted version of himself uh, just by simply moving forward in a straight line is, is terrifying. It's like it, it is being confronted that ultimately everything you build yourself to be like is going to kind of turn, turn in on you. And, uh, and leave you this kind of like dark, lonely version of yourself. Um, and, uh, like, I mean, it goes right into the title. Loneliness is a really, really important, uh, word for this arc and an important theme. Um, and this is, this is the loneliest Tim, uh, the, this dark future Tim, uh, so much worse than the bat, the lonely, like twisted Batman that he, that he saw hurting himself back in the original lonely place of dying storyline that made him become Robin. Um, and, and we're, and that version is going to be able to call, call out some of Tim's worst impulses, uh, in how, he, how much of himself he gives into a world that's never like, that's not going to respond the way he wants it to. Um, and, and so, like, yeah, that's that's really the heart of the whole story is the dynamic between uh, Tim and 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 his future self. You know, Tim is uh, 
we, you, you mentioned how much he was an optimist. I think that's the best word to describe him. And yet, in the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of people taking Tim and putting him <laughs> into the future, losing that optimism. Whether it's, you know, when he was Batman Beyond, he was a little bit different. Or especially in what we're seeing in Batwoman right now, you're seeing this, you know, Tim down this incredibly dark path. Because he is such an optimist, do you think that almost like how there's there are these you know there are so many versions of dark superman because the idea of the darkness is so antithetical to who superman is so because of the optimism in tim do you find that the cynicism and the negativity and the darkness is more uh i don't want to say appealing but you understand what i'm saying do you think that because of his optimism it's it's easier or more appealing to write him as that dark future version Absolutely. I mean, like, I think that the, in terms of, like, a, uh, an aerial view kind of looking down on the conversation, like, uh, like on the, the creation of these types of stories, like, I think that's exactly it. But in, in the context of the story, I think it's also interesting because it kind of makes this comment that I do think is true, which is that, like, you know, Tim is still a teenager. He still has this kind of idealism that's shaped by the fact that he hasn't been hit with the kind of the compromises and uh, like the compromises and failures that you hit, that you inevitably hit just growing up. Um, And, and so he's able to sort of see the best version of things. Uh, But there comes a point where if you close yourself off in order to protect yourself against like feeling feeling the pain of the world you want to exist not existing like it 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 hurts you and it, and i think it's something that happens in real life that you know like with the more idealistic you are the more optimistic you are the the harder the darkness of the world can hit you like and the more that darkness of the world can can really hurt you Um, and so it's like, that is the, like, it's something that I I find very interesting because I mean, I see it myself. I see it in the world, like, uh, today, like, you know, the, you know, the, the world that I thought that was building when I was like a teenager was like, you know, and like, I did not expect like hatred and all these things to kind of come bubbling back up to the surface. And it's just like, and it's made me. Like it's made me more pessimistic about the future, and I see that. And I, but I also want to still capture. Like I haven't gone fully dark future Tim, but it's like I see the potential of the idealist in my my young self becoming the dark future version, where it's just like you, where you stop believing in other people. Um, and so this story really is about like and. And really, Detective Comics is about like uh, is about that struggle, and it is about like you know struggling with idealism in in, in a key way. Mm. 
Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at MultiversityComics.com. Each week we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commanding. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinbro, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow in iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. And we are back with a look at Action Comics number 988, written by Dan Jurgens, illustrated by Ryan Sook. How surprised were you to see that art, that art credit on this issue? Well, even even while looking at it, I was surprised. Well, it's just it's weird because I feel like he's a big name to come in and do part two of an arc. <laughs> yes, yes, right. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, so this is uh, you know, th- this is the issue where we're told it's one hundred percent totally Jorel. The way we were told it was 100% totally Clark Kent six months ago. Uh, both issues happened in the Fortress of Solitude. Wait, we had a lot of Superman uh, con- trying to convince himself that it was a trick and then talking about – and then Jarrell having to tell him all the reasons why it's not absolutely not a trick. You know, it's it's very right. interesting how much time Jurgen spends on the like rules about how, who, the, the allegiance of artificial intelligence, like who, who gets to control yeah. them. <laughs> well, Jurgen's Jurgen's over explains everything, you know. Like there's a, there's just like three lines in there where it's like he like later has to like explain that that um uh, that Jarrell's father-in-law can control the robot because he like was like the primary investor. <laughs> he finest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Right. As majority stakeholder in this company, I control the AI. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and as as we said two weeks ago about this book, like remember that that was the most Jurgensy Jurgens issue ever when they had the the poachers openly talking about how morally bankrupt they are. And like <laughs> yes, this literally sir. has like this um, this like malicious squad that Jarrell runs into to show him the horrors of humanity in absolutely like the most gruesome way possible. <laughs> you know that explain that explains why he's absolutely got this black and white view of the the world. You know, I got really nervous when we got to this part, and Jarrell just like it was the most lawless, dangerous the Earth had to offer, and I'm, I I was just like, oh gosh, who is he about to to piss off? Oh yeah. god, it's gonna it's gonna be set in Chicago. <laughs> and... Yep, exactly. <laughs> oh boy, but. Uh... But um, I'm of two minds of that because I think like it was incredibly heavy-handed, and and you know very Jurgens. But then on the other hand, the the one thing I liked about it was the screen of the the page where Jarrell was being forced, uh, Clockwork Orange style, to watch the horrors of human history. You know. The one mm-hmm. thing I'll say about that is that that page was really effective and it didn't shy away from like the actual imagery. It didn't, it didn't merely suggest things, you know, it, no, you see crucifixions and Nazis 
and nuclear bombs yeah. going off and the crusades and you know and i yeah. kind of like i like when uh like woke well Germans. i like when comics get like overtly symbolic like that with real life stuff it makes them feel like at least they're trying to be a little bit more it reminds me of when comics were really old and Superman was like beating up Nazis and things like that. When they touch yeah. on these real life, political, social, historical things, I think that that's a good thing, you know? Except when Dr. Doom cries. Well, <laughs> better to just ignore that and pretend it didn't happen in your universe, <laughs> right? Okay. Sure. Ah. <laughs> <sighs> Um, but yeah, this was, you know, there were a couple of issues this week that felt like they, they were flashbacks that went on just a little bit too long. And that's how I felt about this one. You know, they they didn't quite need all of the, uh, and I think we all are, are intimately familiar with the relationship between Jor-El and his father-in-law and, and Kal-El. Yeah. Like all that's pretty well tried. I don't know if we needed that scene yet again. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, yeah. It it was fine. It is. It it. It's really like, the the kind of um, like cognitive dissonance that this book creates when it has such great artists come on. Mm-hmm. Is really it, it bother it, it? I don't know how to, to deal with it a lot of the time because I, I like look at the book and I'm like, this is a good book. This is a high quality book. And then I, I'm like, Oh, but wait, remember? <laughs> yeah. Remember, remember the Jurgens of September. <laughs> right, let's go over to uh, Batgirl. Oh, I did have 15. one more thing I wanted to say. Oh, sure. Sorry. Um, I did like how this issue kind of set him up as just like a pawn of Dr. Manhattan rather than being this kind of like grand mastermind. Yeah, that was interesting. That explains like some that of was... the vaguely Manhattan-esque imagery that we've, or um, not Manhattan-esque, but Watchmen-esque mm-hmm. in general. Like it's, he's still very much a part of this. Yeah. But that's all. That's all I had. Okay. Uh, yeah, background number 15, written by Harp Larson, illustrated by Chris Wild Goose. Uh, guys, I love this issue oh, so it's much. It's so good. This, yeah. uh, this book has just kicked it into high gear with this arc. It's just yeah. stupid, sexy Nightwing. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really, uh, yeah. really pandering to us. <laughs> Oh, it is absolutely yes. When when Babs says "call me" with the results, I mean, and Dick's like face turns red. That's that's pandering. Yeah. You're pandering to me, Hope Larson and Chris Wildgoose. I mean, everything about this issue was so fun. I loved the flashback where um, they're on the rooftop and they're going to go into that party and. Uh, and Babs is like, but then we get this. We have to see each other's, and it takes like, oh my gentleman, I'll look away. And she's like, no secret identities. <laughs> like, it's just so great. I know. Yeah, this is. 
I mean, this is again just like some of the best stuff about Rebirth, like how we're getting that stuff back again, you know, that era. Yeah. Even even if it's weird to think that Dick and Babs are young enough to have like in their high school past been singing songs about emojis, yes, and that weirded me out too. <laughs> I, I have to admit, I imagined that that was a Carly Rae Jepsen song. I know you did. Of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, like, we're not far off. Like, y- this time frame would have been, like, y- you know, it would have been right around Call Me Maybe era. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how old they're supposed to be now in Rebirth, but uh, you know, it's that sliding yeah, timeline. Who knows? I know. Yeah. Um. But I, I love the way that they draw. Bo- um. Uh, that Wild Goose draws Babs's old costume too. I just think it's such a it's such a like elegant design of the Batgirl costume. And it, she does look much younger in it. Like it's just, everything about this just is very intelligently done. I really enjoy when I read this book. It's just my I'm smiling ear to ear. I love the party sequence. You know, I can't say enough good things about this book. An MRI machine blows somebody that up. That was that was very weird. Yeah. Yeah. I uh I I want this arc to keep going. I want to just like have a book that's like just, like brew uh Dick and Babs like teaming up and like part in the past, part in the present. I just want that all the time. Me too. Yeah. Man. We know you're listening, DC. <laughs> Make You've proven time and time again. <laughs> yes. We will get we'll be all about this uh that book for sure. Um We have so much to talk about, let's just kind of fly through some okay. stuff here. Uh this next issue of Batman Beyond is a uh I said I'm gonna full disclosure, I did not read this issue. I forgot this was a fill in issue that was not going to be a Dan Jurgens uh written book, and so I skipped past it. But we get uh Steve Orlando right in this book. And who who, who was the artist on this? Uh Sia Oum. But it was also co written by yes. uh yeah, co written by Vita yes. Ayala, right? Yeah. Um and uh, I I'm looking forward to going back and reading this, but you guys tell me, how was it? It was definitely, you know it it was it I'm uh, I, I hate being mean. <laughs> It was it was good. It was better than other things. It was better than Batman Beyond has been. Yes, Is yes, that what you yes. want to say? That's what I want to say. But I just better like it. than any issue of this book. Yeah. Otherwise, it was um, it was it was fine. Yeah. Um, it would be great if this spiraled into something else in the future. Because essentially, what it's about is it's about um, uh a Batwoman character in the Batman Beyond timeline that patrols. Um, I'm pretty sure there's a name for like, it. Wasn't it like Crown Point or Center? No. 
it it's crown yeah it's like crown something at uh, crown point yes yeah crown point uh inner district of the bowery one of the worst neighborhoods in gotham okay so it's essentially about somebody who uh, a batwoman that patrols that area of gotham that is kind of uh the dregs and um f- forgotten about in some ways and and uh, Barbara Gordon gets involved as she's currently commissioner in this timeline, right? Mm-hmm. And um, other than that, it's completely divorced from Batman and the Batman Beyond that we've been seeing. And I think that's really interesting because I, like, I felt. I mean, it didn't blow me away, but I definitely felt like this was a different part of Gotham. That they did a good job of establishing that this is a, um, you know, poor, dilapidated part of Gotham that we don't often see, right? And uh, I'd like to see, you know, it didn't blow me away, but I'd like to see more of it. You know, um, it could it could win me over. Yeah, I think so. It was, uh, yeah, it was interesting. Well, that brings us to the finale of Batman and the Shadow, written by Scott Snyder and Steve Orlando, illustrated by Riley Rossmo. I'm going to miss this book, guys. Yeah, this was, this was such a sweet ending. Yeah, super, super trippy and fun. Yeah. I loved uh I loved how they framed I mean getting past all this stuff with the um the Joker and uh stag. The, and the um I just stag whatever I just love how they framed uh the difference between Batman and the Shadow even though they're awfully similar you know Yeah I thought that was really fascinating how, you know, the, the shadow was um, sort of arguing with Batman philosophically about the curse of being a, a vigilante and, or a hero, you know, and and just how it all shook out. And Batman gets the final word, which is very, uh, it ties into the shadow, the way that he says it. And um, it was really impactful, really, really great ending to a very surprisingly good uh, miniseries. And the Rosmo art is bonkers. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I want him to draw a Superman book. Hmm. <laughs> Zach, what say you? Yeah, I liked it. Um, I think it, um, it wrapped up well. It, it um, I you know I'm I'm always kind of like weird about these sort of crossover series and that they're you know quote unquote don't really matter and and a lot of times I think that mashing up properties from different universes just like doesn't work very well but this was probably the best inner company inner universe crossover that I've maybe ever read and um yeah, it was really good. 
But I think a lot of that stands on, you know, the creative team. Yeah. I'm not quite as excited about the, the like, follow-up that we're going to get. Which Rosmo is not drawing. Right. Yeah. And Vince is not reading. <laughs> You'll read the first issue. <laughs> You're off the fucking show. <laughs> no, it's cool. Um, what I was going to say is we should probably actually just slightly change our order and talk about Justice League... Um. Uh, Power Rangers now also, as that also yeah, that wrapped up this good. week, uh, and another I think excellent intercompany crossover. Yeah, you're right. It's kind of weird how I just said that, and then there is this other book that was very good <laughs> and worked really well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and again was so dependent on the creative team just knocking it out of the park. Mm-hmm. Totally. You know what my favorite part was in this whole issue? Um, no, I don't know. Tell me. It was the part where Batman tries to Bruce Wayne tries to pay for their lunch, <laughs> and uh, he can't pay because it's uh, Lex on the hundred dollar bill. Yeah, <laughs> Lex That's, Lux here. Yeah, that was fantastic. Yeah, this whole this whole series though was really good, and this is coming from again again a guy who has never seen an episode of Power Rangers before. <laughs> well, none of them are this good. I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, but also, like, who's who's more Don Draper here? Is it is it Batman or Superman? Uh, who's, who's... It's Batman. It's definitely Batman. It's got, yeah. He practically but, says that's what the money's for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're not gonna top that comment so let's just uh let's just move on (laughs) uh did either of you guys read blue beetle i did negative i did it was bad it was real bad it was uh very self-indulgent um and i it's interesting because I feel like they told a story that nobody was asking for by bringing the Justice League 3001 back in. And I feel like editorial towards the end almost admitted that nobody wants it (laughs) when they're like, well, we got to take Giffen and DeMatteis out back. Yeah, I don't. This book's weird. (laughs) Right. I cannot wait for. Actually, you know what we should talk about? The news that. um, So it was Chris Sabella coming to write the next arc, right? Right. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And it was going to be Tony Silas on art. And I'm a fan of Tony Silas, but it looks like Scott Collins is actually staying on. And. That it seems significant to me. I wonder if you know how there are these books that we think were getting canceled, right? Like Cyborg and uh, New Superman and things like that. And even the creators thought they were getting canceled. And instead, Cyborg's getting a new creative team apparently. And it doesn't. Nobody's made it sound yet like it's canceled. And. 
I don't know if you guys did you see Cyborg's getting a new writer? Yes. No, who is yeah. it? It's um uh what's his name? Who did the Odyssey of the Amazons? Yeah. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Um but if Scott Collins is staying on with Chris Sabella writing, it almost makes me wonder if they're not just going to keep going with this. And this isn't the wrap-up arc that we think it is. Yeah. Is that possible? It's I definitely mean, possible. Yeah. I don't, so here, here's, here's my argument against that. I think they want to bring in a bunch of new titles and I don't see how they're going to justify doing that if they're not canceling anything. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's fair. Unless a lot more books are going to drop down to monthly. Mm-hmm. I can't believe that both Green Lantern books are going to stay twice monthly. That's crazy to me. Yeah. But remember, at one time, there were like five or six Lantern books being published at once. That's true. That is true. Uh, let's get off this garbage comic. Let's go over to The Flash, number 31, written by Josh Williamson. Josh Williamson, not Zach Wilkerson. Illustrated by Neil Googe. Um I think this was the best issue of this Bloodwork arc so far, and the whole dark speed, uh, the the uh, reverse uh, speed force stuff. I feel like this was the best issue of that so far. I think it gave Barry some stuff to do that wasn't just be sort of evil Barry. Although there was a little bit of that, and uh, I the status quo shift at the end with uh, Wally saying he was going to train him, and Barry being transferred to Iron Heights to work. Were both pretty interesting developments. I mean, not not the most groundbreaking things you've ever read, but I thought they were pretty fun. What did you guys think of this issue? Uh, pretty much the same. I'm, I'm, I think I'm with you on almost every count. There, love getting googed. <laughs> I think it was better googed than last time. Um, somehow, you know, that's usually not the case. But uh, as far as like. You know, normally the first couple issues that a guy, an artist draws are the strongest, and then, you know, they uh, fade the the more they do issues in a row, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and uh, instead, I think this was actually better than the previous issue, which had some weird character work. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think we can uh, all agree I, we're looking yeah. forward to this book changing it up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. That brings us to How Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps. We get uh, written by Rob Renditti, illustrated by uh, Rafa Sandoval. We get some more New Gods action here. We get the young. How, how like, inconsequential and, like, <laughs> And like anticlimactic is this? <laughs> I th- Entirely. I think the biggest news out of this is just how young and handsome High Father is. Yes, yeah. Uh, I don't. Yeah, what was this? Who decided that this arc belonged here in the landscape of Rebirth? 
This this seemed like the biggest like bait and switch. Not even a bait and switch. It, it was just like, okay, well, we've got a Mr. Miracle book coming out and we also have an event about metal. So let's like do this vague arc that will seem like it's relevant to both but actually is nothing. <laughs> I will say, as always, I like when they make Kyle Rayner do awesome things, and they've been very good about making Kyle Rayner not feel like a secondary lantern, and that continued here, and that's all I got. (laughs) I like how the arc just ended with, like, Kyle just needs a nap. Yeah. (laughs) Follow me on Twitter and realize we all just need a nap. (laughs) <laughs> but in reality it looks like he's dying yeah no he looks like so content look at that little like little sleepy smile he's got but guy is like kneeling to pay respects <laughs> oh no that's orion oh that's orion yeah, yeah. sorry i'm looking at it on my tiny little thing here mi despiace yeah well, the less said about that issue, the better. <laughs> um, yeah, that was that was just weird. Also, a book I'm looking forward to moving on in. Yes, or uh, from. <laughs> <laughs> did either of you guys read the Hellblazer? Yep, I did as well. Uh, Zach, I've got stuff to say. So do I. I I I skimmed it. I think this was way better than the last issue. Very much. Yep. Yes. It, um, it showed Constantine, Constantine rubbing. Yeah, I was gonna say rubbing uh, bacon fat in his forehead. Yeah, that's that's Tim Seeley's Wisconsin showing. <laughs> um, also, Constantine watching himself bone down. <laughs> yeah, it's not creepy if it's your memory or whatever he says. Yeah. Um, no, what I liked about yeah, this, it, it, showed, like, it showed him being a detective. Yes. Yep. Yep. And yet it still had this weird, like, mysticism. You know, he suspects that sort of something divine or mystic drove him to the events of that night, you know. Um, it's really interesting. It's not that far off from old. Uh, Hellblazer stories, you know? Yeah. I think one of the issues with sort of sanitizing the character for inclusion back in the DC Universe is his magic is never quite as powerful as pretty much any other like magic character in the DC Universe. And so mm-hmm. one of the things that he's very good for is he's, you know, I, I sort of love the way his brain works when they let him try and crack a case in some in some way. And so this was a very return, a very welcome return to that sort of Constantine story. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, and, you know, to be honest, I don't think this is, this particular story is that sanitized either. No, it's not. Um, like there's a, there's a tiny dick joke in it. There is. Um, yeah. So, I mean, Aside from overtly using some of the curses that they can't get away with, 
it's pretty pretty serious uh, subject matter yeah. at times. Now, if I'm not mistaken, this is it for Silly on the Book. Uh, one, one, you mean like one after one more issue? I, isn't this it? Maybe, oh, I thought it was a three issue thing. Maybe, uh, maybe, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. There's one more. Yeah, but that's it. And, uh, as I wasn't, I wasn't really hot on last month's issue, but after reading this, I, I wish he was doing more on the book. Yeah. I wonder not to speculate too much, but you know, he's involved in that like vertigo panel. And it's been rumored that Vertigo is going to more closely reflect the old Vertigo where, you know, DC stuff sort of crossed over and back. I'm wondering if he doesn't get more shots to do this. Or that's, it's pure speculation on my part and probably a huge reach. But, But but I know he's involved in that uh, vertical re, re rebranding or whatever. Yeah, interesting. Well, let's shift over to Justice League of America number fifteen, uh, written by Steve Orlando, illustrated by um, Felipe Watanabe. And this issue was fine, but the flashback went on way too long. Yeah, I was I was really excited to have Ray Palmer back and 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 spend some time with him, but not in flashback form. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Zach, did you read this one? Yeah, yeah, I did. It. Uh, I mean, I I mostly liked it. It was you know, wild, crazy sci-fi fun. Um, but. Yeah, I, I don't know. This arc is really... The pacing of this arc is really weird. Because, like, you know, last issue ended with that big, you know, cliffhanger of, like, oh, you brought this guy here, you've ruined everything, and this issue we still don't was know why. just an extended flashback, and, yeah, and we don't know why. Um, yeah. Um, and also, the thing about the flashback was that we pretty much knew most of the information in it, didn't we? I yeah. mean, like that was my big problem with it. There were these, there were all these things that were going to happen, all these dominoes that had to fall. And we pretty much knew how they were going to go. Well, that's kind of, I feel like this is a bit like a less fun version of those metal tie-ins where like, you know, Sure, it's a nice to know a little bit more of the story, but it doesn't really push the the narrative along at all. And I feel like if this issue was just skipped, and next issue begins with with Ray telling why it's bad that they brought him back, you don't need to read this at all. <clears throat> you know, so not a bad issue though. I like the I like the art in it. I like Watanabe's art a lot, so thought it looked very nice. There was some nice. Uh, some nice Ray moments, but overall, yeah, I agree. Zach, anything else to add? Nope. Well, this brings me to the book I'm most excited to talk about. Oh, me too. 
And that's <laughs> uh, the Commander Challenge number nine, written by Tom King, illustrated by Kevin Eastman and Freddie Williams the second. So, Tom King did something that no other creator on this book has done, which is that he made an issue that is undeniably his own. (laughs) And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I I, I think we've all been a little bit underwhelmed by the recent entries into this book, partially because everything just feels so generic and doesn't feel like it's taking a ton of chances. Whereas, like, the, I, I say what you want about this book, like, you know, to do an entire, to to essentially pass the buck to the next creative team without adding anything to the story but time, it's a pretty ballsy move. Mm-hmm. What do you guys think of this I, issue? Uh, Zach, I, you, you go first. I... I think this may have been my favorite issue of the book since the first issue. This was my this was my favorite issue of Commandy Challenge. And I'm going to take it to 11, you guys. Oh no. This is the best single issue of a comic book that Tom King has ever written. You're forgetting that Hal Jordan Dark Side War tie-in. Nope. This is better. This is absolutely the best thing that he's written. And only some of that had to do with the Kevin Eastman arc. Or the art. Uh, the the art is very good. Oh, it's so great. Yeah. And just uh, the design of that, the dragger alone, is like so... Very so... Eastman. Is, yeah, it's yeah. very Eastman, and just like the the choice to make it kind of like a monochromatic comic. Yep, yep. And um, I was so happy that I didn't know where where Freddie Williams was in this. Yeah, yeah. I you think know? he might have just inked it. Well, that could be. But I'm not um, sure. Yeah, yeah. But but I like that. I have no idea. It was seamless. Yeah, yeah. It's and oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, yeah. It, it is really good. I'm I'm surprised that you t- took it that far, but I don't fault you. <laughs> well, here's my reasoning. I I've tweeted in the past and I've maybe talked to you guys about how I want in fact I said it on this show when Superman was going through the Black Vault stuff in Action Comics. Mm-hmm. I want comic book storytellers. And Jurgens is obviously not the guy to do this, but you know, maybe Tom King is. And Tom King, like, he's he's almost there a lot of the time, you know. But I, I would love for comic book writers to take superheroes or fantasy concepts or sci-fi concepts and not be afraid to be ambiguous and uh, metatextual and symbolic and metaphorical and not tell you like an overt story and to make to 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 do like uh psychological horror in a way that's not overt you know 
and I, I said like when Superman was in the Black Vault, what if he was seeing like Twin Peaks style stuff, you know? <laughs> and like this isn't Twin Peaks. Commandy Challenge, his issue is not Twin Peaks. It's not doing the same thing, but it's telling you a story using metaphors and bits and pieces of these characters' lives that he encounters, and you don't know necessarily what's real what's not real nothing is really resolved um it just it it's just weird for 20 pages you 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 take what he gives you you try to process it you can't come out with anything concrete or overt from a storytelling standpoint and then he leaves you with this jack kirby quote at the end that that left me feeling like everything I read, I I enjoyed it. I there was no end to it. There was no none of this stuff that I just read was resolved, and I'm gonna be okay with that because he left me with this quote that made this entire issue about something more than what you were just reading on the page. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I and I love um this like Sisyphean task that 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 Commandy has to like defeat this robot or stop these uh cellmates from getting dragged away, you know? But like how that almost feels like it almost feels like, is this really happening or is this some sort of test of wills or, you know, metaphorical? Because then he goes on this rant towards the end about all the, the previous eight issues and all yeah. the events and everything that's happened to him. And it's almost laying it out there saying, like, look, all of this couldn't possibly happen to one person, you know? Right. So it almost becomes about the struggle to live itself apart from this adventure that we've been seeing happen, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like it's talking about life itself in some way, you know? Yeah. And a lot of times in Tom King's other books, not Batman, Batman couldn't be further from any of this stuff because Batman is overt, obvious, hammer you over the head with id the entire time. But I'm talking about like, even, uh, Mr. Miracle, which I love, um, even with uh, Omega Men, which I loved, like it would hint at this story that was okay with kind of letting things hang out there and letting you think about them. But then he usually ended up coming in and and wrapping it up a bit, you know. But that ending of Omega Men, remember that mm-hmm. when Kyle's like at the being interrogated or whatever. That ending is what I want comics to do more often. And I feel like this comic did that as well um, in a way that really teased my brain uh, in a way that comics almost never do. Yeah, to me, this is what this whole series should have been. It should have been creators doing their thing in a commandy book. And I feel yeah. like, you know, one of the, I said, whether you love or hate this issue, 
you can't deny this is Tom King. Tom King it up all over the place. Like this Definitely. is this is the most Tom King thing you can imagine. It begins with like with a quote and a weird, uh, like, you know, uh, you know a uh, like a, a a pattern that gets repeated. And there's it's, it's, it's so King. Everything about it's so Tom King. But he really brought a lot of himself here, and Eastman's art is glorious, and everything about this issue just, it feels like a true collaboration between these two artists doing something really interesting and that I've never really seen before. And that's what I wanted this book to be. And unfortunately, so much of it has just been people unable to get past the broadest strokes in copying Kirby. It It is interesting. I, I had to like go back and look at the last issue just because I had already forgotten everything, but King does not pick up from the ending of that issue. And uh, I think he's the first writer to not do that. How does that issue end? Uh, Commandy's getting attacked by like a sea serpent monster. (laughs) Isn't the implication that that monster then pulls him into this cavern thing? I, I mean, I guess you could make that implication, but like there's no indication that that's what happened like last issue ends he's just like in in on like a little makeshift shift raft thing and this sea monster pops out and then this issue starts and you're just in darkness so i guess you know you could assume that maybe he got eaten or yeah it actually says that it says you got eaten does it yeah it's like the first bit of dialogue Mm -hmm. so he gets swallowed you've been swallowed yeah Ah, uh, oh, okay. All right, fine. You win. Okay, that's <laughs> fair. I had already forgotten that because it was so. It, but I mean, like, it's still like def. Uh, okay, fine. I I still think that it's like this is King. He wanted to write the story he wanted to write, and yes. he connected in the most like tenuous way he could. Yes. Yeah, and and for that matter you could basically toss away the rest of this series and you could have this as a standalone issue. Like I will come back to this issue. Yes. And I don't, I don't need anything else that surrounds it. Although the other, the other note I wanted to make is, you know, last issue I mentioned how, like I called attention to the big two page spread that told basically the story of the whole series. And then this issue does that again. Mm. that's true yeah that's true i yep i didn't even cool. think about that i wonder if that's like some kind of mandate at this point mm, that'd be weird it would be weird but it's it's weird that it happened <laughs> <laughs> all right well that brings us to mother panic number 11 written by jody hauser illustrated by sean crystal um what do you guys think of this issue I'm having the same problem with it that I had with the previous Sean Crystal arc, I guess, in that I'm not always sure what the tone is supposed to be. <laughs> and and also, like, the the in-between scenes, when it, like, switches from one scene to another, I'm never really established... It's very and, jarring. Yes, there's no establishing going on. Um, and I think that's all in the art because I don't have it 
I don't have this problem with this book when any other artist is drawing it. And that's kind of my takeaway. Like I could, I can't dig into this when Sean Crystal's drawing it, unfortunately. What about you, Zach? I, I don't have as much of a problem with it. I, uh, I admit like it isn't the most, um, like visually coherent, but, uh, I, I still felt like I was able to follow it pretty well, and I do feel like Sean Crystal's art is is very expressive, and it's it's different. I don't prefer it to, you know, the Jean Paul Leon or um, wasn't there another artist that worked on this book too? Maybe. Who who are the ones you named? John Crystal Paul Leon. and Jean Paul Leon. Yeah, there was um I can't uh, remember. Uh Tommy Lee Edwards. That's yes. it, yeah, yeah. Um I I definitely think those two those are much better fits for this book, but this is just like so hyper realized and I think it works even better for like the uh the flashbacks to the to that like house that they were in. Mm-hmm. I think it works really well in those scenes and I almost kind of wish that maybe rather than like trading off arcs they could trade off in that way. Like timelines? Yeah. Um but but yeah, otherwise I mean this this book is still just really obtuse and kind of kind of hard to get behind at times. Yeah, I feel like I have to be in the mood to read this book. And I was not in the mood this week. I read it, but it didn't, you know, it just didn't sit all that well with me. Well, let's wrap up this week's books with Nightwing, The New Order, number two, written by uh, Kyle Higgins, illustrated by Trevor McCarthy. Uh, this issue gives us the uh, the answer to last week's question. It was uh, Corey, who is the mother of Dick's son. This, Called it. You did. You did. This issue also has an amazing two-page spread that is essentially the, the beginning of the challenge of the Super Friends with the, with the heroes on one side and the Legion of Doom on the other running towards each other. Yeah. Um, I think that's the only page I liked. <laughs> I, I liked these, the little, like, one-page... Um, kind of like storybook flashback things with the I liked how those were structured and laid out um, I liked this issue a lot more than the first issue Ooh. by a lot really yeah I liked it maybe a little bit more but not a, not a lot more I, well, I guess I I just really didn't care for the first issue much at all this this issue helped me decide that I don't think this is this miniseries is for me. Um, I just don't believe that this is Dick. I guess I, I don't know, and I don't think the art is as good as it was. 
in the last issue. Oh, I think it's much better. Really? Yeah. Mm. Well, ultimately, the like I said last time, I was going to give this book a chance or two to convince me that that this is Dick and this is, you know, a possible future and it's just not doing it for me. Like, I don't, I don't believe Dick turns out like this. I think they kind of, kind of copped out with the way that they, they still don't really explain to you why Dick felt like it was prudent to do what he did. You know, I don't know. It's kind of like the War of Jokes and Riddles, like... Twisted? Yeah, very twisted. Um, No, like, like to me, my problem with that story is that I feel like Batman finds a different way out of the problem. I kind of feel that way about this, too, you know? Yeah. I kind of feel like Nightwing would find a different way out of the problem. I, I do think that, like, the whole concept is, like, really ill-contrived like ill-conceived and, and contrived and like I, I yeah i he's the worst the fit outs- for this character for this story yeah yeah exactly um i think my thing is that this issue did a better job of selling it to me than the first issue did but i yeah i definitely agree that it's just as a as a you know take on dick it's really weird and doesn't doesn't really fit at all yeah Well, that does it for all the books that came out this week. We are going to take a very short break, and then we're going to come back with a discussion of the first four issues of Legion Lost. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Paul, the host of the Comic Syllabus Podcast, a weekly show on the Multiversity Network of Podcasts. We read widely and we dig deep bringing different analytical approaches to our study and appreciation of the wide variety of comics out there. Along with comics teachers, critics, and creators, we do close readings of classic and current exemplars of the medium. And we invite you to join us every Tuesday here at MultiversityComics.com. So let's dig deep. All right, welcome back. Uh, Today we are going to kick off a kind of an experiment that that we're dabbling in where we pick a book, and um, it doesn't have to be a new book. It can be from any time, um, and just kind of revisit it, the, revisit the book, or, or check it out for the first time, as is the case today. Um, we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at the 2000 Legion Law series, uh, written by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, and illustrated by Oliver Coipel and others um but in the issues uh that we're discussing today issues one through three i think koi pal is the exclusive penciler here and um i've been wanting to check out this series for a long time i'm a big legion guy but i've i've never read this it's it's kind of like a gap in there because it's as far as i know is pretty well regarded i believe Um, so yeah yeah and it's interesting because it you know, it comes just a few years before Abnett and Landing go on to do all their big uh, Marvel cosmic stuff, and it's kind of before Koipel really blows up at Marvel a few years later. So it, it's interesting, but um, I I'm interested to hear what you guys thought about these issues. 
Or I guess should we talk a little bit about like what happens? I don't know how. How are we going to do this? I guess give me like a two or three sentence pitch of the of the series thus far. Okay, yeah. So um, prior to this, there were two Legion books going: Legion of Superheroes and Legionnaires, and. Abnett and Lanning came on to kind of close those books out with a huge status quo change, which led to this series um, featuring a, a kind of like pared down group of Legion members thrust into this other universe at like an you know unknown point in time. Um, and so it's kind of them regaining their bearings learning about you know where they are there's a new point of view character um whose name i forget um we can touch on that later but she's kind of it's interesting she bears similarities to a, a classic legion legionnaire um but yeah it's just kind of this like big sci-fi adventure thing in another universe Yeah. Vince, what'd you think of this? I like it so far. Um, I'm really liking it. You know, um, one thing you always hear about the Legion, or I feel like I always hear it, is that they're DC's X-Men, right? Mm -hmm. But I've never really, because I'm not as well-versed in the Legion of Superheroes, as most people probably are. I've never really felt that when I've read a Legion story. This is the first story where I can see what people are saying, you know? Um, just kind of the makeup of the team and uh, the, the way they move about the universe and, and the way that they're seen. Uh, by others, and it it helps that they're fighting against essentially a alien race that's basically a bunch of Nazis. <laughs> yeah, but but like little grotesque, little bulbous. Well, I guess that's the same, right? Yep. That's yep. That, that's what real nationalists are chuds. like too. Yep. So. Chuds. <laughs> yes, exactly. They're they're mega chuds essentially, uh, but. Um, yeah, so so this is helping me to see them more as individual characters and as like individual X-Men type style heroes. Um instead of, you know, often I read the Legion stories and they come off as these uh you know, they're wearing similar uniforms and there's so many characters and so many names you can't keep track of everybody and it's difficult to parse out who's who and there's not a lot of personality, but I feel like these first three issues are full of personality. And, uh, and that was really satisfying to read. Um, I'm instead of, uh, defining people by like the red haired one or the, the dark, like the, um, the goth looking one you know I can which actually... is, is funny because that's actually like what one character does the uh Shikari yes I, I was gonna does. say yeah yeah it was there's a nice almost... little bit of like meta commentary it is a comment on how they're yeah yep and i feel like abnett and lanning 
slowly try to reclaim this individuality for all these characters. And uh, I think that's awesome. And um, Brian, before you get into your thoughts on it, I have one question for you guys because I couldn't really – I was going to Google it and then I never did. Or I did and I couldn't really find like a satisfying answer. Why is Brainiac calling himself 5.1 at this point? Uh, I don't even know that, actually. I think it's probably just like something from in story where he upgraded his his something or other, you know? Sure, sure. Well, that's this is all, that it is... was also 2000 when everything was 2.0 or whatever. Yeah, right. Yeah, there was a uh, um, what was that when the when the the clocks were going to turn to the year 2000? Y2K. Y2K. Yeah, yeah. Brainiac 2K. Yeah. Basically. Um, Which was a thing, too, wasn't it? I think. I don't know. I think in the Superman books around that time, that was a, that was well, a thing. Of That's course great. it was. I completely was. pulled that out of my butt, but it makes perfect sense. <laughs> um, and uh, that it's interesting that you say that, though, about uh, – I guess it's probably just, you know, because um, – one thing that occurred to me while reading this was that these last six or so years at DC, it's felt like no matter what book you're reading, they're all still in the process of establishing themselves, you know, Mm -hmm. defining the universe, especially with rebirth. Now, like they're still spending time rewriting the rules of what we're reading, you know, and there's still a lot of good stories that, go alongside that. But it it it's rare to have a book like Legion Lost these days where you're essentially dropped right in. They're not establishing who this team is at all. I mean, you learn the characters and you learn their personalities in the first issue, but they don't have to like, they're not establishing any rules about, you know, who they are. It's not the first time they're meeting so-and-so, you know, it's, it's a new story. It's new territory with characters that exist that you need to learn as you go. If you haven't read already and done in this really, this is really not a mainstream style book. You know, I can't imagine this book being among the DC rebirth line, you know, no, yeah. Nothing is this weird right now. Yeah, yeah, it it is very unique. But um at the same time I think it feels surprisingly modern for a book that's, you know, coming up on twenty years old. Yeah, I'll agree with that. What I was gonna say is that my um the thing that I have always heard about the Legion, and I've found to be more or less true, is that unless you're really trying, it can be impenetrable. It can just be this daunting book with, like Vince said, with all these characters whose names are similar, whose costumes are similar, all of that. And this felt very manageable. There was not a point reading this where I was all that confused. I mean, you know, at first you don't know every character's name. That's to be expected. 
But overall, I felt it was a relatively easy to follow story. It was, um, you know, uh, Koypel's work looks great, and there's a lot of there's a lot of humor in this book. I mean, it's it's not all um, the most sophisticated humor you'll ever find in a comic, but you know, it's a uh, it's legiony humor. It's it's teenage humor, you know. And uh, I'm I'm very excited to keep reading this. I. I think that the, the like central story is very engaging and is uh, f- feels like a classic Legion story, but also feels like something that's absolutely brand new and easy to jump in on. I uh, I really enjoyed it. It also makes me miss Abnet and Lanning writing together. <laughs> is Lanning out of comics, by the way? <sighs> He has done things within the past few years, but like I know he he had a Guardians book at Marvel um recently, I think. Or he did an issue or something. Didn't they do like a they did like a revival? Didn't the two of them get together just for some sort of revival book? I don't think that they Oh man, what was it? I don't think that they've worked together. I think it was a script that already existed or something, but it had both their names on it. Interesting. I'm certain about that. Let's see. Even though they weren't working together anymore. Um But while you looked that up, I just want to say one more thing, which is that um I feel like this book offers a really good instruction as to how to bring the Legion back next time. There was such a simple introduction to the characters, to the concept of the Legion. You're never confused about what's going on in this book, and yet you're not bogged down with a thousand names and a thousand similar costumes and all that. So I I would really recommend if DC brings this book back to do so in a similar fashion to this. Yeah, I think it was a really good idea to kind of pare the team down a bit. Um, and I I actually, I'm pretty sure that around the same time as this, there was another book that had the other characters in it. Um, I think it was called Legion Worlds, um, which I've not read that either. But I think this this core team works really well. Um, yeah, I like it. And yeah, the uh, the Lanning did at least an issue or two of that Guardians team up book that came out around the same time as the first Guardians movie. Okay. Yeah, I remember uh, there was an interview or something where Abnett said like, "Yeah, we." we threw together like a script that we had sitting around or something like that, or we doctored it up for, you know, just out of uh, deference to Marvel and our run on that. But even though they weren't working together, I really like this a lot so far. Um, I think the, there are a lot of like really cool high concept sci-fi things. I think this, the, this race of nomadic, um, 
almost like they're not they're not in they're like insectoid you know with the the armor that they have um i think they're really interesting and this shikari character is a lot like um dawnstar who i think she's almost kind of supposed to fill that archetype because her whole thing is like being a, a pathfinder and being able to like track things and stuff um but it's also kind of like a very 2000s version take on on that character i think um but you know i like i mentioned earlier i think that the 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 cast that they chose for this is works really well and kind of highlights a lot of the the legiony things the things that make the legion so you know distinct um a lot of the kind of you know relationship drama you know a lot of the like teenage stuff that defines like the x-men and things like that that vince was getting into earlier um and there's just like you know a few cool things like um the uh i can't remember the character's like real name um he's the I can't in this he's called like Erg one or something uh-huh. in, in the third issue, you know, he's the star and um, he in, in like the Legion lore, he's he's like Firestorm, you know, 1000 years later and kind of like this pure energy being and trapped in a mechanical body, basically. Um but they bring him back in a really interesting way and just, yeah, I don't know. I like how each issue is kind of focused on a different legionnaire and kind of gotten their point of view and their, I think that's worked really well. um, Even though I, I usually don't like that kind of internal narrative technique, just because I, I think it's, I I don't, I think it like weighs down the plot of an issue a lot. But I, I feel like it's handled really well here. Agreed. Also, I really like how much they focus on the like inclusiveness of the Legion and how you know like the ideals that they stand for, and just kind of how diverse the cast is for a, a book that came out in you know the very early two thousands. Yeah. But yeah, uh, let's talk about Koi Pell. Yeah, I just wanted to say, um, he, this is n- definitely not the Koi Pell that Koi Pell will be, <laughs> for sure. The embryonic uh, Koi Pell. What's that? It's the embryonic version. Yeah, uh, very much so. Um, and unlike the flaming lips, the, his best days are ahead of him at this point. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, yeah, you can you can still see that it's definitely him, like in the face faces and things like that. But man, some of this some of this stuff is a little sketchy for me. I mean, that, yeah, it's very sketchy. It's very. <sighs> post 90 90s not yet like the widescreen hitch sort of 2000s you know Mm -hmm. there's there's a lot there's there's a lot of 90s there um and that's that's the one thing about this book that i'm not loving some of it's okay but 
Yeah, I don't know. It's 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 not the Olivier Coppel you expect to see. It's not. I I kind of like it for that. Like I really do enjoy his style here. I think maybe a bit more of a sore thumb is I feel like this is very much the early days of digital coloring. Yes. And there's some weird palette choices, you know, some yeah. very garish colors. That's that's a good observation that I am not smart enough to make. <laughs> well, I may be like off on like this may not. I mean, I assume that this is colored digitally and uh, there's just like I, sometimes like the purples are just so <sighs> like the. Like, you look at Brainiac 5, 5.1 or whatever, and, like, the 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 smoothness of the colors, it's just, like, not... Like, the gradations are so pronounced, mm-hmm. you know? Like, the, you have, like, a violet color that bleeds into kind of a more... I, I don't know, I'm not good at color names but you know like a lighter pinkish purple and like it just it's very blotchy it looks like something that you would do in paint or something and not like i don't want to knock the colors because at the time i feel like it's just a sign of like data technology yeah (laughs) that is very fair well uh readers i mean listeners if you want to read along with us we'll be doing issues four through seven for next week so Get those issues and read along. Until then, you can find the three of us on Twitter. I am at Brian Needs an App. I'm at VJ underscore O-S-T-R-O-W-S-K-I. And I'm at SirFox89. And we'll be back next week with more DC3Cast. Thanks for listening. All right, get these bozos out of here. <laughs>